You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, She is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called all his servants together, and personally told them all these things, and the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and, my, and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, What made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought, there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves gave them to Abraham, and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, Look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Thank you, Tiffany. You guys can sit down. You know, we've been doing this series as we look at this man, Abraham, and his journey of faith, learning to trust the Lord. Uh, as a nomad, as a wanderer, as God has given us given these great promises. And if you've been tracking the last few chapters of Abraham and Sarah's life, it's kind of a high point. Like if we're talking revival, Abraham's kind of living in revival times. In chapter 18, we had this epic story of how he interceded, obviously for his nephew Lot, but really for this whole city and like standing in the gap for them. Just great high moment of intimacy with the Lord where he and God were walking step in step. And even as we saw last week, this idea of God's rescue in the midst of horrific situations. And and the point that stood out to me last week is this idea that God remembered Abraham. Like God loves Abraham. He knows Abraham and he does great things because of that. And in many ways, last week, it was a stark contrast to the descent of this man, Lot, his nephew, who was not going in a good direction. I mean, we didn't really dig into all the details at the end of last week's chapter, but if, you, um, if you're just bored, go read it, because it's some funky stuff. It's like HBO kind of stuff there, right? Like, Lot is going in not really a high spiritually flourishing direction, whereas Abraham seems to be riding the crest of that wave of knowing the Lord and living in his favor. He's the man of faith, and he really seems to be growing into uh, who God has uh, blessed him to be. You know, we, we look in the book of Hebrews, and we're not going to look at it here, but it describes all these people of faith, including Abraham, and like we're like, we get it. Wow. He really knows God. He lives for the Lord. I mean, he, our boy even got a new name, right? He went from Abram to Abraham. He's a whole new creature. As we look today, though, all of that provides some contrast at this next step in Abraham's journey as we looked, uh, as Tiffany read in Genesis 20. 
because we see that as much as Abram has grown, we see a glimpse of some of the same old Abraham. Really, same old, same old. It's a little shocking. It's a little disturbing, to be honest. So we're going to look into that. And if you find that your life is a little shocking, disturbing, you might find us a real good servant for you. I know it's for me. So let me pray. Lord, help us. Because without you, Lord, this is just a lot of noise. It's some activity. It's good. But Lord, we want more than just good. We want to know that the Spirit of God is taking what could be simple words and drawing us to a place where we come face to face with who you are the immense nature of your great love for rebels like us. So help us, Lord, as we look at this life of this man, Abraham, and what you might be teaching us through that. Holy Spirit, guide us. Lord, we're, we're amazed that in a room like this, you know everything going on in each one of our lives. Lord, right now, you know even some of us sitting here who are really struggling. It's been hard. And maybe the biggest challenge has been ourself. You know that, God. And we're not here accidentally. You want us to be able to experience you and be reminded of good news. So, Lord, meet us as we need to see you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at Genesis 20, and we're kind of getting close to the end of this series, this really, this tracking of this man Abraham. And we see that he's, uh, his journey involved a nomadic lifestyle of literal travel. He was on the road, as God had promised him, taking from his homeland. And we see in the first few verses there that while he was staying in Gerar, this new place in verse 2, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. So I, I trust the scriptures, but yo, I don't know how to interpret this whole John, right? Because uh, Sarah's about 90 years old at this point. Apparently, she's real hot, right? I, I don't know how that works. Again, this is not ageism or anything. I just don't know how that works. But she's, I mean, there must have been something in that Middle Eastern water, right? So Sarah is really attractive. And she's noticeable. Abraham knows she's attractive, so he's trying to do something with them, saying, she's my sister. And the thing is, some of you who've been tracking through this series, or maybe you know the scriptures yourself, but if you followed the series, you may have done a hard stop when, when Tiffany read verse 2. Like, you're reading, ah, that sounds awfully familiar. Because if you remember our first sermon in chapter 12, uh, they had a really, really similar kind of incident as they were going to Egypt. There was a different place, but the, the situation was kind of similar. Abram, back then he was called Abram, he was scared at coming to his new place. And I guess Sarai, Sarai was still hot, right? So he's like, okay, you need to pretend to be my sister. And it got, it got all bad. And, and look what happened in chapter 12 and verse 18. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh is ticked. He's like, you stink, man. Who, who does that to someone, right? Who does that to their wife? You are horrible. So, and this is like 25 years ago, right? So Abe's name was different. Uh, he was a younger man. We could have said he was a dumber man. But he committed the same unbelievable transgression. Even with all the maturity that he had lived through, even as he walked intimately with God, he was the one who prayed, interceding for a whole city. He's the one that God remembered. But still, he doing knuckleheaded things like this, just like back many decades ago. I find it interesting. This is just a side thought. I find it interesting because sometimes you think we're going to make really crazy, dumb decisions when we're going through really hard times, and that absolutely happens. For some of us, we make our worst decisions when we're in the middle of really traumatic instances. But I find it interesting that for Abram, for Abraham, um, these things happen after great promises of blessing. Like in chapter 12, it was right after God had given them this great promise. You are going to be the father of all peoples. Like you, the people won't even be able to count your progeny. And you're going to be a blessing and all people will be blessed through you. And then Abram does it here. Abraham is, Abraham's riding sky high 
and it doesn't seem like something bad happened, he just made this decision again. Again, some of us, we fall into the lure of sin because situations are bad. And we shouldn't minimize that. Um, but for others of us, sometimes our sin is a response to our prosperity. Like something happens in our life. Like either we can't handle good things. I, again, this is going way deeper than any of us need for a sermon like this. But maybe some of us, we got like some self-destructive kind of mechanisms in us. Like it's hard to enjoy life being good. I'm kind of like that. When things are going really good, I start asking, okay, when's it going to all go really bad? And if I'm not careful, I'm sometimes a part of making things go really bad. I'm, I'm like being a little too open here. I, can I do that? It's okay, right? Like I find myself, I can be self-destructive without even fully realizing at times. And yeah, I don't know if that's Abram, but sometimes... We don't feel good about good things happening and we train wreck ourselves. And maybe you know people like that. Maybe that is you. <laughs> I, I know it's me at times. Um, so we, Abram, we don't know the full scope of his motivations. But one thing we know for sure, whatever caused it, is that our man has sinned. Like sinned real bad. I mean, it's so bad and so clear. This pagan king is the one who's calling out his sin. He didn't need God to say it. It's this like non-God-worshipping king saying, yo, homie, you sinned. Like real bad. Who does this? It's like bad on an astronomical level. And I think one thing that we can pull out of this just as we think about our own journeys is I think it, it helps to remind us there are certain areas of sin that each of us are just susceptible to. And the thing is, it probably looks different for a room like this um, wisdom is recognizing that what some people struggle with, you might not. And what you might struggle with, someone might think you a wacko. But it's there. We're just susceptible to certain things. For Abraham, it seems that he struggled with telling the truth. Like when he was stressed, he started to do it. I mean, he real good with words, right? No, she is kind of my sister. I mean, we could all do that. Well, we are all commonly descended from Adam and Eve. And from, I mean, you can twist words however you want, right? Abraham finding a loophole. But I think maybe for Abraham, it seems like the deeper issue is he just doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust that God is good, that where God has told him to go, that everything will turn out good. So he starts to respond in fear. And when you, when you went living in fear, you start making some real questionable decisions, like telling your wife, yo, babe, pretend to be my sister, okay, until we get out of this place. And he has to manipulate facts to protect himself. You know, so as you think about yourself, um, I'm, no judgment here, right? If you lying about your wife being your sister, I mean, let's talk later. Let's do a counseling session. But I'm guessing that's probably not the biggest struggle for all of us here, but... But we each got our own stuff, right? We all got our stuff. That's part of the reason we come here as worshiping people. It's not to pat ourselves on the back of how holy we are. It's to have a safe space to say, whoa, yeah, here's where I'm hurting. Here's where I'm in pain. Here's where I tend to manipulate facts to present myself in a certain way. Here's sometimes the way I do things just because living in who I am is really painful and hard. I'm trying a way to protect myself. And maybe some of the wisdom for us is asking yourself, what are some of your trigger situations that bring those things out? I'm going to guess for Abraham, again, I would have loved to sit down with him just one hour and just like tease some of this out because it's fascinating to me. Like, what made you do this? But if we look at common thoughts, it almost seems like for Abraham, even when things are going really good, it seems entering a new city and having to encounter not knowing the customs and the people, that seemed to be like a trigger situation for Abraham. It seems to put him in a place where, oh, I don't know how these people are. They're going to be, oh, my wife is real beautiful, so they're going to they try. I mean, I don't think he's making this stuff up. He, I think he really struggles with that. So it seems like maybe for Abraham, things like that are a trigger. Maybe for him, it's tied around relational insecurities. Man... I don't know if this unbelievably hot 90-year-old is still going to love me after we go into this new place here. Yeah, I, I, we don't know, right? But for whatever is going on, there are certain triggers for our boy Abe. 
And I think for us, for you and me, wisdom is to also recognize what are some trigger contexts for you that put you in places that you make some decisions that you would not normally make when you're at peace in your heart. What are some places, people, situations, times of the day that maybe it's not best for you to make big life decisions? Because you start to see patterns, this is when I don't operate as well. Are are there particular contexts that make it challenging for you to trust that Jesus is enough? I mean, that sounds so trite, right? Jesus is enough. That's why we worship saying Jesus is enough. What's the nature of sin? Sin or the temptation of sin is things are questioning, is Jesus enough here? Because there might be some, when you're in the middle of village worship and worship band like, you're like, oh, yo, Jesus is enough. How could I ever doubt Jesus is enough? But then you get into other spaces in your life. Oh, wow. I'm not sure if Jesus is enough here. Maybe it's stress that comes out of your family situations. Maybe it's when those bills come and finance has been a little tight. Maybe it's when you're in certain places. Let's be real. Maybe for some of us, it's when springtime starts coming and people are wearing less and less clothes and you're like, oh, how do I handle this? Winter was excellent. I don't know how to do this. It's like, what are some of the trick situations, context, situations, people? And just own that in humility. Don't pretend to be stronger than you are because what does the scripture say? In our weakness is our strength. Don't try to be Superman, Superwoman. Be saying, I, yeah, I got some stuff that can trigger me. I got some stuff that can make life really hard. I think I've probably shared this with you guys. For me, in my younger days, I mean, even now, well, stay with me. Um, I, <laughs> I, have, I have an addictive personality. Like if you get me on something, that's why Netflix is not that good for me. I need to clear out my schedule from going to Netflix. If I start something, I need to get through that whole thing. I got some dysfunction when it comes to that. It's like addictive. And for me, when I was younger, I was a heavy drinker. Like really, and again, we won't go into my mama probably watching this, but like, <laughs> like not good. And one of the things that the Lord um, started to redeem in me was a better sense of those things. Like just, okay, well, but... Back then, where I was in my life, I couldn't be around situations where people would be drinking. I was just, and you can judge me thinking, you know, man, what's wrong with you? For where I was at that time, someone else might have been totally fine. For me to be in that place, moderation was not a thing. I would lose control. So for a season in my life, I had to like remove myself from those places. Does that make sense? Like we need to know what are triggering kind of situations or people or context for us and in humility say, um, I'm going to own in humility. I might not do as well here just because I think I got this. I need some people around me. I need some things to help me. So whatever it was, again, we're doing a little speculating here. It's okay. But for our boy Abraham, he having himself a night, Right? He having himself a day. He probably beating himself up. His wife has been taken to this uh, King Abimelech's place. He beating himself. You know what? Maybe he's blaming Sarah. Don't we do that sometimes when we fall to sin? We blame other people. Why do you have to be so hot, Sarah? Why? If you weren't, life would be so much simpler. Oh, you know, he, he seems to be blaming Sarah. We got we to gotta lie about this because of you. You're just too darn attractive, woman. I'm... It seems like he even blaming God a little bit, right? He talked about God's promises for a child. Like, God, you're the one who's put me in this situation. Whatever it might be, he's probably having some kind of night. But here's the thing. Even amid this horrible failure, and this is an epic failure, if you feel like you had a bad week, just read about Abraham here and feel a little better about yourself, right? Because even amid this tremendous failure, the Lord's redemption is available. And there's good news. 
Let's continue verse three. But God came to Mimelech in a dream by night and said to him, you are about to die because of the woman you have taken for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister and she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech, before he able to get into any kind of anything, God stops and intervenes. And I just thought it was fascinating, just as you look at the structure of this whole like narrative uh, story of Abraham, where just a few chapters earlier, Abraham was the one standing in the gap for this evil city, pleading for God's mercy. Now he is the cause of maybe wiping out a whole nother people. Just fascinating in its juxtaposition. But guys, what we observe here is the Lord's intervening love. We see an amazing glimpse of God just inserting himself into a situation that could have gotten really bad without him. Because we got to be clear here, there is no hope here other than the clear intervention of God. This is not going to take care of itself. Don't you do that with sin sometimes? I know I do it. Sometimes I know I'm sinning. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to pretend and it's going to go away on its own. Usually doesn't. This is definitely not going to. This is going to get real, real bad. This is a bad, hopeless situation, but God intervenes for the sake of his promises to Abraham's family, but also for the sake of showing mercy upon Abimelech's uh, people, from Abimelech and his family and the rest, rest of his tribe. God is showing great mercy. He's telling you, hey, this is where it's going to go if it doesn't change, but I'm giving you a chance to change this. You have an option here. I'm going to show you great opportunity for mercy. And the thing is, you and me in our lives, you may not receive a clear message from God like Abimelech did, um, but can you just know that the Lord's favor for you is often recognized in his intervening mercy in your life. That if you are God's, so much of God's love for you is him just sometimes interjecting himself and you're probably not even fully aware of all the times it's happened. That he stopped you or maybe he's placed roadblocks in front of you. And, and let's be real, when you experience a roadblock, that's just not even a pleasant sounding word, right? Roadblock, it just brings up negative connotations. But the idea is that God in these things, even if it doesn't feel good, is protecting you, is looking out for you. And you know, we often think of God, some of us, like he's a big genie, right? The purpose of God is to kind of give us what we need. Like we, we rub his belly in the form of prayer and our gifts and obedience. And yo, I'm a community group leader. That's a big belly rub there. And, and that God will kind of bless us like a genie. And we want to be clear. He is the giver of all good things. But God's love is also known sometimes in not giving us certain things. God's love is absolutely shown in giving us things. But God's love is also shown in not giving us other things. Because some of God's kindest mercy is not getting what you thought you really wanted at the time. That's really hard to wrap your mind, especially if you're in it. If someone tells you that while you're in the middle of something, you want to just slap them, don't you? Don't ever tell someone going through hard stuff, oh, God has such a pleasant purpose for you, brother, in this. Boom! You just want to smack them, right? That's so horrible. We're going to edit that. I, I want to, because it just doesn't feel good. But the theological truth is that's how God works. In the things that seem like they're holding us back, things that feel like they're almost being taken away from us, often in God's providential, sovereign love, he's actually loving us by sometimes not giving us what we think would make us happy in that moment. Because what we sometimes see as a big no from God might be actually him giving us a yes to something better. It might not be today or tomorrow, but it might be a yes to something else. And the better, 
Um, it might come in the form of something totally unimaginable like it did for Abimelech. Because I'm guessing for Abimelech, our boy, um, look at verse 7. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. Better for Abimelech was Abraham. I mean, I mean it's, it's fascinating that um, this is the first time that this word prophet is actually used in the scriptures. This is a monumental moment. It's the first time it's used. And a prophet just really simply is someone who speaks for God and also intervenes and speaks on behalf of the people. So imagine what our boy Abimelech thinking, right? He has just been, his whole family's being cursed right now because of this dude Abraham. He's hating life. He's like pleading. He's fearful. He's like, what the heck am I going to tell my people tomorrow? And then God says, oh, here's your answer. There's a prophet. It's that guy Abraham. A what? You must be kidding me. Seriously, God, that fool? That joker, that liar, he's our, this is not, this is not acceptable, but it's, it's the way it is. Better for Abimelech probably didn't take the form what he thought it'd be. So I, I kind of feel bad for Abimelech through this whole story, man. He's just, he's going through it. But look what happens. Verse eight, early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called all his servants together and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that never should be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Have you ever been so frustrated with someone you just need to know, what are you thinking? Like, it, like, it makes no sense. I mean, it's, it's got to really be something when, the, when this person who's got the power to help you is someone you can't stand, right? That's what Abimelech having to go through right now. And, you know, we looked at this a little bit last week, but sometimes it's confusing in the scriptures when God seems to allow or even bring destruction on a pagan people. You know, those are really hard scriptures to try to wrap our minds around. I think, I think Larry did a great job of teaching us some of that. But what we have today, there's no moral ambiguity here. There's really no question. Abimelech and his folk, they are in the right. They have not done anything that's deserving of punishment. Abraham is the one who done them wrong. He done them real dirty. Their hardship is, is directly on account of his sin, his fear, his lies. And Abimelech call him out on it. He's like, what were you thinking? Prophet? <laughs> like, it like makes no sense at all. And look at, look at Abraham in verse 11. Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So when God, I don't know if he said it like that. I just imagined he would say it like that. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. So Village Church, pro tip, when your sin is revealed to you, don't do this. <laughs> I mean, don't do this. This is really not good. Because Abraham blaming everyone else. He blaming everyone else. He blaming the people. He's like, yo, these are violent. They don't, they don't know God. They don't know kindness and compassion like I do. They're going to wipe me out if they see my wife. Oh, I can't trust these people. I mean, he blames Sarah. Again, he even seems to blame God. He's making excuses. He's trying to rationalize. He doing weird, timey-wimey stuff on familial relations and sister wives and all that. I mean, he doing just weird stuff with words. And did you catch this emotional blackmail here? What he tells Sarah? Show your loyalty to me. He's basically doing a modern, if you really love me, dot, 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 dot. What do you say to that as a wife, huh? If you really love me, Sarah's put in a horrible situation. I mean, I've read some scholars that said, no, no, she was an equal participant. I don't think so. Not in that time. 
This was absolutely Abraham putting this upon his wife. Abe's really not doing well here, guys. He is not having a good day. I mean, this is PG-13, but he's showing his butt. Right? That's, that's what he's doing. He's showing his butt. So imagine Abimelech, right? This is God's prophet? Really? This is God's man? This is God's spokesperson? This is just really awkward, but look what happens. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abram prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves so that they could bear children for the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham should have had a bad day like most of us do and say, all right, well, there's always tomorrow. The sun will come up tomorrow. And he should have gone home, lick his wounds, maybe beat himself up a little bit, say, why did you do that? Because I'm, I'm, I, I trust Abraham's a mature guy. He's had some real good moments. I don't think he's doing this to try to be a troublemaker. He probably did like maybe some of us do. And like we are genuinely for God. We love God. We live for him. But don't you find yourself still doing some stuff? You're like, how did you do that? Why did you say that? Why are you thinking that? I'm thinking that's what happened to Abraham. He still knows God and God knows him. But should have been one of those days. He just goes home, puts his tail between his legs and say, all right, well, I'll try to do better tomorrow. But look what happened instead. Abimelech showers this guy with lavish gifts. He gives Abraham land. And guys, this is really significant because remember what was some of Abraham's fear? He's coming into this new land as a foreigner with no home. He's scared. He's fearful. But what Abimelech does is he gives him land. He takes away his status as a foreigner. He makes him as one of the people from there. Ironically, the one that Abraham was so scared of as a newcomer to this land was the one who allowed him to not have to live in fear any longer crazy. Abimelech also blesses Abraham with this extravagant monetary gift, a thousand pieces of silver to honor Sarah, to pretty much say, we didn't do anything with her. She is as pristine as when she came in. I I just imagine here again, maybe I'm reading too much about it. Like Abimelech, when he's saying, I have given your brother, you know, like he makes a point of it, your brother. He knows this is all a scam, but he's doing what he can, right? Because consider that 50 pieces of silver, that would be probably the most that you would offer a family for a bride. And Abraham, even as he showed his butt, his foolishness is met with 20 times of what a bride would usually bring. A thousand pieces of silver. And like the Lord said, Abraham indeed acted as God's prophet to heal Abimelech and all of his tribe. Even though he was the cause of their curse, The Lord remembered his promise that Abraham would be a blessing to all peoples. Even when you screw it up, Abraham, you're still going to be the instrument of their restoration. And guys, if you think of grace, a really, really simple definition, but if you think of grace as God's unmerited favor, this whole story just drips with grace. Like grace is like flowing over this, dripping off this, because this whole thing, it should make kind of uncomfortable. You should have read this, and if you're reading with brain wide open, you should be like, ah, something's not quite right there. This, it's not, the scales are not weighing here. Like, if there's any sort of uh, inkling of justice within you, or maybe you come from a background, you believe in things like penance, you're like, uh, Abraham need to pay a little penance here. He need to do something to make things right here. He need to pay. He need to make up for his terrible decisions. And, and, you know, I'm sure Abraham was like in his inner soul was experiencing torment. Um, I'm, I'm sure it affected his marriage. You know, we don't get all that, but I'm, I'm just guessing it affected it, right? But he made it out real good, at, at least materially. Like in staying, instead of paying the consequences of his terrible choices, Abraham's actually more prosperous at the end of this than he was at the beginning. And God even used him. 
I mean, if we can be real, it feel a little icky. That's a theological term right there. It feel a little icky. That's what I got. I wrote in my notes, this feel icky. It just doesn't feel right. But guys, it's because grace doesn't really make sense. That's the nature of God's unmerited favor and love. Grace does not make sense because it shows that God moves in and through us, not because of our faithfulness, but often in spite of our unfaithfulness. That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he did with countless saints all throughout the scriptures. It's what one theologian, Jerry Bridges, described, Jerry Bridges describes with grace is that it's this utterly insane idea that there is nothing so good you can do to make God love you more and at the same time that there is nothing you can do that's so bad to make God love you less. Grace is in, it's insanity. So just a couple of practical thoughts to take with us. One, if we believe the grace that we see at work in this story, I believe we have to wrestle with being more generous with grace to others. What does it look like to be more generous with grace to others? Because this is just me. We live in hard times, but I think as much as Christians talk about grace, we can be really terrible to one another when we fail. Like, we eat each other alive when we sin. And I think part of what we have to do, just like we see with Abraham, we have to see one another through the lens that we are all learning to trust God more. We are all, none of us have it put together yet. There is a time coming promised to us in glory when there's no more struggle with sin. But in this side of it, we will constantly struggle with sin. We, and, and hopefully sanctification, that just means growing in holiness. Hopefully sanctification means that it gets better and better until glory. But yo, we are fooling ourselves if we think it's ever going to be perfect on this side. We will always disappoint others, but also ourselves. Because guys, the reason we need to give grace to others generously is you will encounter many people like Abraham. Some people who really bless you, but at the very same time, the very same person, you're like, how could you disappoint me so much? Because I, I thought you were with me. You're so holy. You're a leader. You're great. You're, man, you really screwed this up, dude. It's like in the same person. And sometimes that means like with Abraham, some people will seem to do, keep doing the same thing repeatedly over and over. Because I think we're good with forgiveness if someone sins and we forgive them and they never do it again. We're like, oh, good, you understand forgiveness. Good, you're a good girl. But when someone sins and we forgive them and then they do it again, all right, I'm gonna forgive you because Peter and Jesus, the whole seven times, okay, I'll, I'm, I'm keeping count. But part of life and walking with people is realizing even though the context might change a little bit, Sometimes the roots of our fear, our shame, our guilt show up in different ways. And we struggle and we fall into that. It's a fight. And just like Abraham, even when we're riding the crest of God's blessings, it doesn't take that much for us to slip into some of our challenges of sin. If it happened to Abraham, I think it's a little arrogant to think that it wouldn't happen to us. I know it happens to me, and maybe I'm the only sinner in this room, but I'm guessing from knowing a few of you, it happens to us as well. If we understand that, um, we need to give grace. Guys, hear me though. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences, accountability to our actions. It doesn't mean that we don't have hard conversations with people leading to repentance. I, this is just a conviction to me. I actually think we need to be more honest with people when they've hurt us or hurt others. We can't just put things under the rug. We actually need to bring things more out in the light. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't um, put actions in place that are designed to give safe structures for people and boundaries. It doesn't mean we don't do all that. We should. Grace doesn't mean that we don't do what we can to confront sin and its effects. We're not talking about going easy on sin. But what I am saying, all of that is done to point one another to the restorative work of Jesus. Even when it looks like a hard line, we're doing so, so that we can point people to the grace, mercy, and forgiveness found in Jesus. And just really simply, my prayer for our church, our community, 
can we be a place, can we be a space that we allow one another to work out our stuff, both from the past, but also in the present? I think this is applicable in our relationships, both in church, but if you're married, this is definitely a play, right? Because I guarantee you some of those vows that sounded so epic on that first day, don't fight yourself right now to not look at your spouse. Don't, don't do it. But you're thinking, dude, woman, where did that go? Because we will struggle. Some of you, your roommates, they have promised they are going to do the dishes. And they just don't. Over and over. Or they only wash the inside of a cup. You know, weird stuff like that. We're getting into some traumatic stuff here. I realize it. Bring that to the Lord. But I'll be, um, one thing I think the Lord has been teaching me, and some of that's been through my own journey, I need to show much more grace to people because I tend to see what I want to see. I see what's not getting done. I see how people fail me. And what I think the Lord has been gently trying to show me more and more is, uh, Dan, you need to dig a little bit more into these people's life and see some of the hard stuff they're going through. Because often the things that we interpret as people not holding up their end of the bargain, people falling short, people disappointing us, that might all be very real, but we also need to recognize all of the things that are going on in people's lives that make it really hard right now. People are going through stuff. People are going through trauma, People are going through a relational challenge. People are not even struggling. How am I going to make it through today? And what you might be experiencing is just the overflow of that, the external response to that. But some of what it means to be a community of grace is we take the extra steps. And that's what empathy is, right? We try to step inside. What are people going through? And the reason why I say I feel like God's been teaching me that, that's been me for the past couple of years. Because if I have hurt you at all... Um, I, I realize more and more um, when we are going through stuff, we make decisions that are not always normal. We say things that we might not always say. We respond in ways that might not always be healthy because there's so many things pressing on us that sometimes that's what spills out. And that's one thing therapy's really helped me to see. There's a lot of stuff going on that I'm not processing as well. And unfortunately, those around me sometimes are the ones to receive that. But what I've also received are some incredibly gracious, kind people who've given me the space to process that. And I, I, my hope for our community is we can be that for one another. Say, you know what? Your life is kind of being a train wreck right now, but I want to give you the space to be able to figure that out and receive God's grace. And I want to hopefully be part of giving that to you as well. So can we be generous with grace for others? But guys, can we also be more generous with grace for yourself? This might sound really like non-gospelish, but can you receive more grace? Can you be more generous to yourself? Um, when I was much younger and much dumber, some of you are like, man, you were dumber? But I was, right? I was young. I was reckless. I remember I got three tickets within like a one-month span, Right? And I didn't know stuff like this happened, but my driver's license got taken away. I was like, wow! And I'm like driving, delivering pizzas, so this is not working out well, right? And that's a whole other story. But it got taken away. When I got it back, though, you should have seen me on the road. I'm like this all the time, looking for cops everywhere. Like, I imagine there's a cop hiding behind every, like, cave and every light. And I'm, like, stopping at stop signs for, like, eight seconds. And, like, people honking me at lights. I'm, like, I'm not moving until I need to move. Like, I was scared to death because I'm imagining there's always looking, someone looking to pull me over. And, and I was just thinking about that um, on this message. I think for a lot of us, that's how we see God. We imagine God is that he is just some mean, whatever, genie. You, uh, you, maybe you picture Aladdin or whatever. Like you picture whatever God looks like to you, but he's just like waiting for you to screw up. He's given you all the rules. He's given you everything you need to succeed. What's wrong with you? 
I've given you everything you need to thrive. So go do it. And that's the mentality that you have. And he's waiting around the corner. He's got his like speedometer waiting for you. Go one mile over and he's ready to pull you over because he got to get his quota, right? And he's just waiting to try to hunt you down. And you're scared to death. And have you ever tried to drive like that? You're not enjoying driving at all. You're stressed out the whole time. There's no joy there. But for so many of us, that's how we view a life with God, that he's looking to punish us. He's just looking to try to find a way to tell us how we've messed up again, how we haven't lived up to what we're supposed to do. That he wants us to write another ticket that we need to pay off. Or maybe he'll be gentle and just give us a warning, but tell us you need to do this better next time. Like that's how we view God. But guys, if you are in Christ, in Christ is such an amazing relational description because it means it's so different of how God sees you. It's like what should have been in our call to worship, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What that means is you are still a sinner, just like me. But God, it's as if he doesn't see that because he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ in your place. And there's freedom. And there's joy. And there's the wind going through your hair to drive. In freedom. And in hope. And like with Abraham, God doesn't just tolerate you. Some of you, you need to get that out of your head that God, God is just kind of putting up with you. He, like, you stink, but God already signed a paper, so I guess it's done. And He's just waiting this out for you to get to heaven so you'll finally stop screwing up. But God does not just tolerate you, saints. If you are a saint, you are a saint. God looks at you as one of his own, perfect as he looks at Christ. He doesn't just tolerate you, but he'll actually even use you even with your proclivity to sin. Even with some of the same old sins that you might struggle with. The things that you feel you should be passed by now. And it doesn't mean that we're not fighting with that. I, I want you to hear clear. We fight. But even when we struggle, you are not disqualified from God's love. And, and I, I hope for some of you, you're like, well, dude, duh, that's gospel 101. Doesn't everyone know that? I just want to make sure in case some of you either don't know that or you haven't embodied that fully, that God looks at you as if you are the perfection of Christ himself. And because some of you, you've been holding back, whether it's your service, whether it's your commitment, whether it's your love for God, you've been holding back because you feel unworthy. You feel you're, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. You feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And maybe you're not. But if it's about being worthy enough, yo, this whole room is empty, guys. <laughs> If it's about being able to come to God, be serviceable, be able to be on mission for him, yo, this whole room's empty. It's like a bunch of communion cups sitting by themselves. Someone eat and drink me. I mean, there's no one. Because there's no perfect people here, right? But there's a perfect Christ who loves us. Because that's grace. And it's grace that transforms us. And again, I have, I'm just... This is not explicitly described. So some of you bibliophiles don't send me hate mail saying you are. Play. But I have to just imagine, because after this story, when we look at Abraham, he seems to have gotten some stuff. The stories we see after this is like tremendous instances of faith. It doesn't sound anything like Genesis 20, Abraham. And I've got to believe that part of what helped Abraham experience transformation was not God hating him more, but was actually God's deep love for him and the grace that was poured out. And I'm sure Abraham came back moment after moment remembering this day when he should have crushed Abimelech and his actions were terrible. But what did God do? God blessed him, not because Abraham deserved it, but because of grace. And he's like, if God loves me like that, wow. Wow. His grace is what transforms this guy. And it's what transforms us. And as we come to the table, the table, as we remember Jesus' own meal with his followers, that's where grace was demonstrated. 
that the table was pointing us to the radical sacrifice of Jesus, that grace that makes grace readily available like a shower to us. Guys, some of us, we think God's grace is like a little dripping, like you're trying to find where God's like showering. He wants to invite you into that because grace tells us that we couldn't rescue ourselves, but there is one who could, and he did. And that's what it points to, the loving sacrifice of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I ask you to stand with me as our worship team comes up? And as they lead us in song, I'm going to ask you to sing. But really, I'm going to ask you to respond however you need to. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to get on your knees. Maybe you need to walk around, do whatever you need to do. But I'll also invite you to come up and we're going to take communion together after the first song. So if you are a follower of Christ, come up, middle aisles, grab one of these elements, bring it back, and hold on to it till we take it together after the first song. But can you allow the table to be your invitation to the marvelous grace of Jesus? Maybe you felt like a failure in some area of your life. Can you know Jesus? It'd be weird to say he loves your failure, but he loves you. He takes all of you. And let the meal be a reminder of God's radical love for you. If you're not a Christian, hopefully we're just like breaking down all of the ideas of what a Christian means. It doesn't mean you're a good person who does good things. We should do good things, but it's because we recognize we need Jesus to be our living sacrifice. If that's you, I want to invite you to receive this gift. Say, I want to know Jesus in this way. Talk to one of us. We'd love to talk with you. Let me pray. Lord, help us. Lord, through a story like this, we don't just shake our head at Abraham. We get a glimpse of ourself and some of the same old that we see in the mirror. And for some of us, Lord, it just makes us shrink back into different space. But Lord, may we be able to stand proud, not arrogantly, but in humility, knowing that if it were up to our goodness, we wouldn't be able to do it. But because of Jesus, we can stand and even be used to show others good news like Abraham did to bring healing like Abraham did, even in his proclivity to sin. So lead us, Lord, to the Savior who does heal through his very own life. So I want to invite you to respond however you need to, and we'll take communion together after the song.